In those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. There I'll put them on trial for what they did to my inheritance, my people Israel, because they scattered my people among the nations and divided up my land. They cast lots for my people and traded boys for prostitutes. They sold girls for wine to drink. Now, what have, I, what have you against me, Tyre and Sidon and all your regions of Felicia? Are you repaying me for something I have done? If you are paying me back, I will swiftly and speedily return on your own heads what you have done. For you took my silver and my gold and carried off my finest treasures to your temples. You sold the people of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks, that you might send them far away from their homeland. See, I am going to rouse them out of the places to which you sold them and I will return on your own heads what you have done. I will sell your sons and daughters to the people of Judah and they will sell them to the Sabaeans, a nation far away. The Lord has spoken. Proclaim this among the nations. Prepare for war. Rouse the warriors. Let all the fighting men draw near and attack. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weaklings say, I am strong. Come quickly, all you nations, from every side and assemble there. Bring down your warriors, Lord. Let the nations be roused. Let them advance into the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the nations on every side. Swing the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come trample the grapes, for the winepress is full and the fats overflow. So great is their wickedness. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near. In the valley of decision, the sun and moon will be darkened and the stars no longer shine. The Lord will roar from Zion and thunder from Jerusalem. The earth and the heavens will tremble. But the Lord will be a refuge for his people, a stronghold for the people of Israel. Then you will know that I, the Lord your God, dwell in Zion, my holy hill. Jerusalem will be holy, never again will foreigners invade her. In that day the mountains will drip new wine and the hills will flow with milk. All the ravines of Judah will run with water. A fountain will flow out of the Lord's house and will water the valley of the Acacias. But Egypt will be desolate, Eden a desert waste, because of violence done to the people of Judah, in whose land they shed innocent blood. Judah will be inhabited forever, and Jerusalem through all generations. Shall I leave their innocent blood unavenged? No, I will not. The Lord dwells in Zion. Thanks, Steve. I don't know about you, but uh, one of the things that Robert and I like to do is to go travelling. We, when every chance we get, we can get in our camper van and away we go and, 
explore things. Uh, recently, in April, when we had a bit of leave, we went to Halls Gap in uh, the western part of Victoria. I don't know if you've been there, but we visited an Aboriginal centre. And at that Aboriginal centre, I was amazed to see some of the difference of culture and awareness and understanding. Their, their perspective on the land is totally different from ours. They have six seasons, not four, and a whole range of differences. And I was reflecting on this passage from Joel and the cultural um, background into which Joel speaks is so different from ours. So I just want to give you a little thumbnail rundown of some differences between how we, what we value as important in our world and how we perceive ourselves in connection with land compared with Aboriginals and then compared with the day of Joel. Modern Western nations, this is a th the thumbnail, so it's not exhaustive, but modern Western nations place their emphasis on money and possessions, don't we? In our world, what's seen as important are things like business and banking, retail and sales, trade in the share market, along with the housing sector, the consumer price index. Interesting term, that consumer, the consumer price index unemployment rates and interest rates. People are valued because they buy and consume things and help keep the economy ticking along. You hear our politicians all the time, we go, economy strong, economy strong. What we want most in life is good health, enough income and to be happy. By contrast, Aboriginal people place their emphasis on the land with its plants and animals and seasons. Connection to country is the key thing because it feeds and sustains them. They work with the land, the weather and the seasons, not against them. They observe six seasons, not four. Family and kin are very, very important. The aged are honoured for their knowledge and wisdom. People are valued because of their spiritual connection to the land. And I'm not necessarily agreeing with these things, I'm just commenting on them. In our culture, we see ourselves as owning the land. It exists for us, we live off it, it's expected to produce for us. God plays no part in it when it comes to land because the land exists basically to glorify us. In Aboriginal culture, land is everything for it owns them. The land is regarded as their mother. It is country, and every aspect of their lives is connected to it. They exist to glorify the land. But in Jewish culture, like in Joel's day, both people and the land belong to God. So in our culture, the land belongs to us, in Aboriginal culture, they belong to the land. In God's economy, both us and the land belong to God. The land was gifted to Israel as the promised land. Their role is, was to steward that land. Both they and the land exist to glorify God. 
So you can see three fundamentally different ways of viewing these things. And when we come to Joel, we're catapulted way out of our comfort zone, way out of our familiarity into a world in which God is regarded as the chief centre point of everything. The Bible's point of view is that the earth is the Lord's and everyone and everything in it. So in Joel's day, God was the reference point for all things because he defined everything about them. Even if they disobeyed him, they didn't doubt his existence. Whereas we've got heaps of people that don't even think or believe there is a God. He gave them their land, their rain, their crops and herds and seasons. He owned the land and they lived there by his permission under his rule. God governed the seasons and provided the rains and the harvest. He kept them from their enemies or handed them over to their enemies if they were disobedient. People were precious because they were made in God's image and he dwelt among them. That's significant. Look how the chapter ends. The Lord dwells in Zion. So, People were precious because they're made in God's image, designed to function in relationship with God, and he dwells among his people. So we would do well to consider whether our view of ourselves and our positions and our possessions, do they fit in with this kind of worldview? Do you think of your possessions as yours or as God's? God's possessions? Do you think of your body as your own or as God's? We know in the New Testament it says, you are not your own, you're bought with a price, therefore glorify God with your body. And that's exactly the kind of worldview we're looking at here in Joel. How do you view your life? How do you view everything that is entrusted to you? Is it is it that you're a steward from God? Is it trusted, entrusted to you? Do you see that Jesus owns you? He's your Lord and your Saviour? We won't progress very far in our Christian walk if we think we're the captain of our own ship, free to sail it wherever we like and think as we like. God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. And humility is not so much before others, it's before God. Before an omniscient God, do we see that we don't know everything? Before an omnipotent and all-powerful God, do we see our weakness? Before a God that's omnipresent, do we recognise how limited we are? Then we should be humble. See what, what is said about God's land and God's people here in Joel. Verse 2. God will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. There I'll put them on trial for what they did to my inheritance, my people Israel, because they scattered my people among the nations and divided up my land, my land, my people, my inheritance, they cast lots for my people and traded boys for prostitutes. They sold girls for wine to drink. So this is like 
they, they treated Israel when they broke through and got that victory over, over uh, Israel as the spoils of war. They could do with it as they pleased. And yet they were, they were tinkering and fiddling and trespassing with God. God's people. God's land to whom he had made promises, the promised land. And they were stirring up the wrath and anger of God and they didn't know it. So he's angry with the nations who cast lots for his people. I think we need to front up to the fact that God is still the God who judges nations. In our own nation, we've got our own things that must anger God. That, that stir up his wrath and anger. You don't have to think very far. Um, just the other day I was, I was thinking, I remember learning in ancient history that uh, the Romans exposed their infants. If they, if they had a child they didn't want, they'd just leave them out to die. And I remember thinking, how terrible is that? What kind of a culture would do that? Now we live in a culture where if you don't want a, a baby... You abort it. Is there any fundamental difference? I can't really see it. We're just as pagan as they were. When people drift away from God, they lose their reference point. And this is what we start to see coming out loud and clear in Joel. God's especially angry that they did these things, look at verses 5 and 6, to be vindictive towards God's people. You took my silver and my gold and my finest treasures to your temples. They plundered the Lord's temple and took it off to their own temples. You sold the people of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks that you might send them far from their homeland. So there was intention behind what they're doing and that angers God and it stirs him up on behalf of his people and he's going to act. So we're told in in the very first verse, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah in Jerusalem, I'm going to gather the nations together and basically it's judgment day, the day of the Lord. So we see it's like a courtroom Verse 7, see, I'm going to rouse them out of the places to which you sold them. I will return on your own heads what you've done. I'll sell your sons and daughters to the people of Judah and they will sell them to the Sabaeans, a nation far away. The Lord has spoken. It's like the Lord is sitting on his judgment seat and he's decreeing what's going to happen. Proclaim this among the nations. Prepare for war. And there's real irony here because he's saying... Prepare for war, and so they're going to be getting ready. In those days, when you got ready for war, you consecrated yourself to your gods. But they were going to meet the living and the true God. And it wasn't actually going to be a war, it was going to be a judgment. They weren't going off to battle, even though he said, beat your plowshares into swords, your pruny hooks into spears. So take instruments that are normally used for peace and and for developing food 
and turn them into instruments of war. The very opposite of Isaiah and Micah's prophecy that said, turn your swords into plowshares, etc. So it's a reversing of that and he's making a mockery and he's saying, you're going to meet your God. There's going to be a day of judgment. You've come and plundered my people, now your day is coming. Get yourselves ready and you're going to meet me in the valley of decision. Verse 14. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. But it won't be their decision. It's going to be God's decision. He's going to be the judge. He's going to pass sentence on them like they'd pass sentence on Israel. Now think about this. They're going to reap what they've sown. God's plans aren't going to be thwarted. Sometimes we forget that the grace of God includes the defeat and judgment of the spiritual enemies of his people. Despite the efforts of these enemies of God to disrupt his plan and to destroy his people, they are the ones who are going to be judged. So often in the Bible we see God defend his people, don't we? The book of Exodus, Pharaoh had the Israelite baby boys drowned or put to death. And then Pharaoh and his army were drowned in the sea. In the book of Esther, Haman tries to exterminate the Jews. He and his sons are hung on the gallows he'd prepared. In the book of Numbers, Balaam was hired to curse the Jews, but each time he blessed them. God turned the cursing into a blessing. In the book of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar put three Jews in a fiery furnace only to find God was in there with them. A fourth man, a son of the gods, is walking in the fiery furnace with them. And not even the hairs on their heads smelt like smoke. They survived. God was able to rescue his people. The Assyrians and the Babylonians captured the Jews and took them into exile, but both of those kingdoms are no more. But you can still visit Israel. You can still go to Israel. God sees and he will act. There is going to be a day of judgment. We might think we get away with things, but he sees all things and there's going to be a day of reckoning. Things that grieve his heart do not go unnoticed. Things that stir him up, he remembers. He is of purer eyes than to behold evil and we need to remember that. We need to remember that in our lives, if there are things that we do that stir him up, there will be a day of reckoning. We're told that every idle word we're going to have to account for. That's a scary thought. I don't like that thought. But Jesus talked about it. What's been whispered in private is going to be shouted from the rooftops. God is going to judge us for our sin. So verses 9 through to 16 are like a summons to war, but it's really a summons to judgment. And God is sentencing them with guilty. 
Now, there are ironies here. Instruments of peace becoming instruments of war. God's going to sit to judge the nations, whereas normally you rise up to go to battle. The battle's going to be won before it's even fought. Swing the sickle for the harvest is ripe. After all, the locusts have been through and eaten everything in chapters 1 and 2. Now God's going to do the same thing amongst the nations. Like the locusts went through and plundered God's people and took their crops because of their sin, God, because of the sins of the nations, is going to swing the sickle of his judgment amongst them and reap a harvest. What Joel highlights is a hard truth. There can be no salvation for Israel without judgment for her enemies. I'll say that again. There can be no salvation for Israel without judgment for her enemies. There can be no salvation for us without judgment for sin. It just goes that way. God cannot blink at sin and pretend it hasn't happened. He can't just will it or wish it away. Jesus said, whoever is not for me is against me. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. And that's John 3, just a few verses after verse 16, for God so loved the world. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. There's only two ways, God's way and any other way. And only God's way gives life. So Joel 3 here is painting a vision of two futures with opposite consequences. God's way that leads to life for his people and the way of death for their enemies. That's how his kingdom works. The last part of the chapter turns the focus off the nations back onto Israel and the blessings God has for them by way of reassurance. Verse 17, Then you will know that I, the Lord your God, dwell in Zion, my holy hill. Jerusalem will be holy. Never again will foreigners invade her. In that day the mountains will drip new wine and the hills will flow with milk. So he's describing the land as abundant. He's describing it in terms of blessing. And the ravines of Judah will run with water. So it's a land of milk and honey and running water. Now think about this. We're warned in, in 2 Peter 2 like this. If God did not spare angels when they sinned but sent them to hell, putting them in chains of darkness to be held for judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness and seven others, if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and he rescued Lot, a righteous man who was distressed by the depraved conduct of the lawless, for that righteous man living among them day after day was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard, if this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to hold the unrighteous for punishment on the day of judgment. 
This is especially true of those who follow the corrupt desires of the flesh and despise authority. So God knows how to reserve the ungodly for judgment and deliver the godly for salvation. He knows how to do that. Now, there's a wonderful example of this. Um, happened about 100 years ago. A small band of Christian missionaries were in China during the Boxer Rebellion and they were fleeing persecution. Christians were um, um, really being targeted during the Boxer Rebellion. This is about 1900, 1901. They were hurrying along a bushy path away because they knew that they were being pursued and the leader of the, of the small group of missionaries had this increasing sense of dread. I cannot continue on this path. I have to get off this path. But it was the logical way to go. It was the only way to go. And eventually it just became so overwhelming to him that he turned to the rest of the group and said, I know we're being pursued, but I don't think we can continue down this path. We've got to get off this path. He didn't know why. So they found a little sidetrack, went down and there was a stream. Right where they went there was a boat, had food and water and everything in it and exactly the number of seats required for them and they sailed off to safety. Only afterward did they discover that just a short way on from where they were there was an ambush had been laid. People had heard that they were fleeing, knew the track that they would be taking and laid in wait to kill them. The Lord knows how to deliver the godly from trials. He's able. We need to take these things on board. We need to believe that if God is for us, who can be against us? Can you imagine what joy this would have given to, um, to the people that Joel was writing to and saying, the Lord's going to dwell amongst his people here. So the end of this chapter concludes with a promise of future blessing for God's people. And I've got a, a beautiful picture here uh, that I can show you on screen that someone's drawn for us. It should come up in a tick. And it's from Joel 2.25. Remember the previous chapter said, I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten. The great locusts and the young locusts, the other locusts and the locusts swarm my great army that I sent among you. So one side we see devastation. The other side we see rejuvenation. God is able to restore the years the locust has eaten. If he can do that for a people, surely he can do it for a person. You might, be, you might be living with regrets. You might be thinking, woe is me, I don't know, I've wasted my life. Uh, there's so much has happened in my life that's a mess. I don't know how it can be undone. God knows how to deliver the, the godly from their trials. And he knows how to restore the years the locust has eaten. He's able to do more than we ask or imagine. Because our God is for us, not against us, through Christ. So take heart. The Lord can more than make up for what's been squandered or wasted or consumed in your life. He gives grace upon grace. His salvation is to the uttermost. 
He's able to, to, to save the vilest offender and he's able to transform their life into a trophy of grace. Be encouraged. If God is truly for you, who can be against you? That's what Joel is saying. If he knows how to deliver you from your trials, he knows how to make up what you've done that's been wasted. The Spirit releases reserves of energy and wisdom and creativity and resourcefulness that soon swallow up the years of regret and famine. Israel's bright future contrasts with that of her enemies who are going to be desolate and a wasteland. Judah's going to be fertile and inhabited. Jerusalem's blood is going to be avenged, verses 20 and 21. Judah will be inhabited forever and Jerusalem through all generations. Shall I leave their innocent blood unavenged? No, I will not. The Lord dwells in Zion. The Lord dwells with his people. Joel's final words ring with deep messianic significance. The Messiah's coming. The Lord's going to dwell with his people. We know in John 1, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We know in the new heavens and the new earth that the Lord dwells with his people. Behold, the dwelling of God is with man. Zion was that temple area of Jerusalem. It pictures God as king dwelling uh, with his people, seated as, as the royal, regal, majestic figure, ruling and leading and providing for his people. And if he does that for his people, he will judge their enemies. He will vindicate them. So be encouraged. It's appointed to men once to die and after that comes judgment. So Christ was sacrificed once for all to take away the sins of many. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. The second coming is something for a Christian to look forward to. But for those who don't know the Lord, it's the day of the Lord, the day of vengeance, the day of wrath and a fearful expectation of judgment. So who can we rely on who's, who's going to lead us in these paths of righteousness? Will money do it for us? No. Money won't do it for us. Can friends do it for us? Or family? Not really. A friend can show us the way and, and tell us things that are helpful, but they can't walk the journey with us and take us to heaven themselves. But Jesus took on flesh and blood. He ever lives to make intercession for us. He can escort us through the valley of the shadow of death and present us faultless before his God and Father. He can take us right into the very throne room where he is seated at the right hand of God and we can find grace to help us in time of need. That's the hope that we have in our Lord Jesus. Which future will be yours? Depart from me, I never knew you, or welcome, enter into your master's joy. The Lord knows those who are his for he dwells among them. He knows us by name. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I lay down my life for the sheep. 
Do you hear the shepherd's voice? Do you hear the voice of mercy and encouragement? Come to me, or you that labour and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He calls us by name, and when he does that, we're his forever and ever and ever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this clear picture in the book of Joel of two visions of two different, very different futures. A future apart from you or a future where you dwell with us. Father, I pray that here this morning there would be none among us who would take these things for granted or who would assume that sin is such a little matter that you'll wink at it and overlook it. Father, unless we have come to your Son for the forgiveness of our sins, there can be no forgiveness with you. That the flip side of grace must be judgment. That if we do not receive the provision you have made for us in your Son, then there's a fearful expectation that we will have to take the punishment. For ourselves. Give us encouragement, Lord, to look to you. Open the eyes of our understanding to behold you in your glory, to see the wonder of the cross, to give up our self centered ways and turn to you, that our hope would not be in money, nor in any connection to the land, but in connection to you. You own us. You are our God. You care for us. We look to you now through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.